Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Rancid Taco Movie Review Podcast. I'm Skylar Sanders, here with the Michelle Pfeiffer to my Michael Keaton, Mason Weir. All right. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's not even in this movie, by the way. No, no, no. But it's obviously a play on Batman. And the, the movie is Birdman. Or the unexpected virtue of ignorance. Oh, good. I'm glad you added the or in there. I love it when movies do a, a, a single title or a title. Well, Birdman came out in 2014 and got 91% on mm. Rotten Tomatoes. Not too shabby. Yeah, pretty good score there. Pretty popular movie. I think it's a cult favorite, maybe. Mm, I don't think so. I think it won an Academy Award. It won an Academy Award for what? Best film. <laughs> Really? Okay, yeah. well, not a cult favorite, a mainstream favorite then. Well, if you consider Hollywood cults, which a lot of people do, so, you know. Well, I don't think you can brand this movie with a genre, and I think mm. almost that's maybe the point. I don't fully know the point of the movie, but that was maybe part of the point. Yeah. This main character really resisted labels and, and putting a label over something. He didn't like that, so... Maybe that's what they were going for with this movie. Because I think Michael Keaton, who plays the main character, did he write this film too? No, no. It was written by uh, the director, I believe. <clears throat> Sorry, I was just looking up the accolades for it. And just a real quick cover that. Uh, it did, at the 87th Academy Award, Birdman won four Academy Awards. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Cinematography. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, so, uh, so wait, now, what we, we were saying what? I was asking who the director was. I thought Michael Keaton had a bigger role than just the acting part of it. No, a director is Alejandro G. Anaritu. He originally conceived the film as a comedy, filmed as a single shot set in a theater. Which you can see that, like a lot of these, a lot of these are just really long single shots. I think at one point there's like a 25 minute scene that goes on with no breaks. Yeah, that's the first thing that stood out to me when I was watching it. Is I thought, man, this whole movie is one big take. Did they just do this in one scene? But then you can see there's a few times where they'll like cross a doorway and it'll go yeah. black for just a second. Yeah. I think that's when they're cutting scenes. Yeah, they definitely had little tricks in there like that and shots where it's scaling up and you could stop the camera and start it again and like reset. But uh, but yeah, for, for a lot of the movie, I think it's just really long single takes, which is, which is uh, kind of fun to do as an actor because you're doing it's almost more like a play as opposed to a movie yeah even without that to me it's just a really a really complete movie with like philosophical stuff going on you got comedy you got drama you got good acting performances the directing style is really interesting it's just and the story in itself is just interesting too the directing style though that we were talking about and, and the filming style made me feel anxious and like I was missing something all the time. I couldn't keep up at the beginning. It was kind of very frenetic and, and over-energized for me at the beginning, especially. Yeah, yeah and, and the, those drum beat, the drum beats and the drums and cymbals in the background helped drive that, the pace of the, of the script. So they would start picking up, and the scene starts picking up, and the anxiety of the scene is building. So yeah, it definitely gave me that feeling too, so I think that might have been uh, something they were going for. It reminded me of Uncut Gems. If, I don't know if you saw that one, but yeah. not the movie itself, but the shooting style that they used. They really build the anxiety just the way they filmed the scenes. And I don't know if that's always a good thing if, to feel anxious. I found myself relieved on the few scenes where they 
stopped moving the camera for a minute and focused on the the actors. Well, and that's the thing is you can't do that one. You can't do that. You can't go 100 miles an hour the whole time. Like scripts are built with many climaxes all the way throughout it. uh, Many climax. But the script is always building, building, building. You got to have rise and fall of the dramatic action or else it's just going to be like, oh, God, let me off this fucking ride. Yeah, I agree with that as well, because it, it did kind of make me dizzy at the beginning. Though I'm not even saying no. it's a bad thing. It's just a, it's a style that's hard for me to do, especially when I was trying to take notes. I was like, oh, my God, when do I end the note? Because the scene yeah, never the ends. Scene, it's a 30-minute yeah. scene. The scene's not over. Can't stop. Can't look away. Yeah. Nope. Yeah, but I found it actually difficult to take notes, too. I, I only got about a half a page the first time I watched it, and I got maybe another half almost or a quarter of a page the second time. Well, we'll get into the body of the movie, but before we do that, let's let's talk about the cast here a little bit. Your favorite part. We got all yes. new cast, I think. Yes, and an all-star cast, too. So we've talked Batman before, and we've talked Christian Bale as Batman, but I think this guy was the first really memorable movie Batman, and that is Michael Keaton. He's a good actor, too. He's a great actor. I think. He's a great actor. I love Michael Keaton. If you don't remember him from Batman and Batman Returns, he was also in Beetlejuice. No, he yeah, was, Beetlejuice is great. He was in this awesome series I just watched recently called Dope Sick on Hulu. Oh, I didn't know he was in that. Yeah, really good. And he was in the new Spider-Man as a vulture-type villain creature. Vulture, maybe, mm-hmm. was his name? Yeah, something like that. He was the, he was the bad guy, though. He, played, he, he did that really well as well. Yep. And in this one, he plays Regan Thompson. And Regan Thompson is a used used to be famous for his character, uh, his movie character, which is a cartoon character called Birdman, and he was the uh, film star of that for at least I think three of the movies, and he became famous off that. And now he's trying to well, it's it's debatable whether he's trying to put together something that's meaningful for his life or just trying to remain relevant in some way. Yeah, that's I think why I thought that Michael Keaton had something to do with the writing of this script because Birdman from 1992, he was mm. Batman in 1992. It's like yeah, they chose this actor, but they're not mentioning that. It, that started the mind fuck that this whole movie is right away. It's like as soon as yeah. you see Michael Keaton's in it. Yeah, that's that's for sure because it definitely uh, it definitely mirrors Mike, Michael Keaton's journey in the movie world as much as it does the character of Riggins. It kind of mirrors the wrestler that we reviewed last week in the sense that we're seeing this guy only as the broken down or the older version of a once famous star. Yeah. So that's an interesting aspect for, for us particularly. Yeah, we got a little mini theme going on for this month. Yeah, we're going with broken down pieces of meat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, Michael Keaton is awesome in this. He's awesome in everything I've ever seen him in. And it's a great acting performance. And we can move past him too. Naomi Watts is another one I wrote down here. She plays Leslie. And Leslie's one of the actresses in the play that Regan is trying to produce. You might know Naomi Watts from The Ring, Eastern Promises. She was in Movie 43, which is the one I told you about where Halle Berry stirs the guacamole with her boob. Oh, nice. Yeah, she was in that movie. So uh, I don't know I how I haven't that. seen that one yet. You don't want to see it. It's a horrible movie, but that, that scene is kind of cool. Well, but I, I'm a fan of guacamole, and I'm also a fan of Halle Berry's boobs, so that should 
work. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, that's that's true. Check it out just for that scene if you want. <laughs> but Naomi Watts is in that movie, and in this one, she uh, has a supporting role as one of the actresses, and also an important girlfriend character of, of another character we're going to meet later. Mm-hmm. And then you got Zach Galifianakis, who actually this is the only movie I think I've ever seen him in where he's not playing a complete goofball. Yeah, I didn't even recognize him when he was first on the screen, but he is pretty funny in this. And well, not really funny, but good well, in the role. He plays yeah, the role well. He plays the truth of the role. Some of the moments in that are funny, but he's not—he's uh, not playing a funny character per se. Well, all the credits I wrote down for him are his funny movie credits. There's The Hangover, Due Date. The campaign, yeah. all funny movies. Well, all kind like, of the same role too. Like, yeah, like I was saying, he doesn't do serious roles. This is this is the only serious role I've ever seen him in, and I think he does a good job with it. Yeah, yeah, he does. He's he's probably the third or fourth best acting performance in this one, I would say. Mm-hmm. Which isn't saying a lot, but you know, <laughs> it isn't. He didn't have a huge role. There's only five, oh. five or six main characters, but yeah. Well, I was going to say, he's on screen with uh, Michael Keaton, Naomi Watts, Emma Stone, uh, Edward Norton. Edward Norton was the one that impressed me, actually. I thought that mm-hmm. this role probably would be hard to do. You know, you're playing an actor who's arrogant and egotistical, so you'd have to put aside your own ego to, to create this ego for a different character. Mm-hmm. I don't know. He, he comes in and plays this hotshot actor, and I think... He puts on a pretty good performance. Edward yeah, he, and he's the artistic New York uh, top dog actor. So he comes on under the guise of being the true artist as he's kind of a foil character for Michael Keaton, who is known as a Hollywood star. And he's trying to be a, a good actor on Broadway and make it on Broadway. But uh, Edward Norton is like the Broadway guy. All right. And we're going to have a little talk about Broadway Right after the cast, even if you want, just to clear it up and get it out of the way. But let's yeah. finish up. Yeah, let's finish let's up the it. cast first. Let's do it. Let's just uh, finish up the cast real quick, real quick. Yeah. Okay. And I've only got one <laughs> other one there, besides uh, the ones we've mentioned, and that is Emma Stone. You brought her up. She mm-hmm. was in Superbad, Easy A. She played Cruella Deville in the new Disney movie Cruella. I don't yeah. know what I, how I feel about Emma Stone. She's, she, she seems she, like a pretty good actress, I guess. I she know. blows me away in this performance. That, that speech where she's talking to him about you're nothing, you don't matter. Like, she gets so angry, and then all of a sudden her face just realizes. Like, you just see the moment of recognition on her face where she just realizes what she's just said and all that. She went over the line. Yeah, and her face just morphs, and it's such a good job of conveying that, I think. Yeah, she does do a pretty good acting job in this, I will say. But yeah. in other movies, she's I've been less than impressed. So I don't. That's why I was saying I don't really know how I feel about her on the whole. But in this one, yeah, she is. She's pretty good. Yeah, I think she does a good job. And that's not, like I, I, it's an ensemble piece, really. Like Michael Keaton's the star, but but all the actors get their moments. Even uh, what's the other the girl, um, Andrea Riseborough, plays Laura, Laura the other. Like the other, maybe. yeah, I didn't write her down, but she does yeah. have a few moments where she and, has some big scenes. Yeah, and the wife, Amy, uh, Amy Ryan as Sylvia. Yep. So there's that. Like I think it's just an all-around well-done ensemble piece. Yeah, pretty good. Edward Norton was the one that stood out to me because I feel like I didn't think I liked him, but mm-hmm. but now I realize I just don't like the characters that he plays in movies. But he's actually a really good actor, I think. Yeah, he does a great job in this. I think. He was in Fight Club, American History X. Uh, what's the one? 
real oh rounders everyone loves him in rounders but yeah he's a total worm he is called the worm in the rounders so yeah and then this one he's an asshole too he's always playing an asshole actually it seems like kind of a lot of his roles he is there's there's some other good ones one of my favorites is the score yeah where he does that and that's a that's a fun one and then um death to smoochie I watched that one time with you. You showed it to me. I don't remember anything about it, but I remember liking it. Yeah, Robin Williams and him play two like child stars. So like they're not they're not children, but they're they're stars of children's shows. And like on the front on the cameras, it's all like laughy lovey children's show stuff. But behind the scenes, like Smoochie becomes famous for being this like goody good hearty person. And and then Robin Williams' character, Mister Rainbow Man, is like the grizzled, hardened guy behind the scene that's like trying to take him down and sabotage him and stuff like that. So it's like the gritty underworld of children's television. <laughs> Sounds like something we might have to dig into one day. Yeah, it's worth a look. All right. Well, then, before we get started on the movie, though, let's clear this thing up here about Broadway. Yeah. Who so, are the greats to walk the boards? You want oh, to no. tell yeah, me? Marlon Brando was one of the greats to walk the boards. Yeah, he's on that list. About the only recognizable name, really. Well, I want you to explain broadway to me like i'm five because here's my understanding of it at least from what i've garnered from various tv shows and things is that movie actors are movie actors but then some of them come out of hollywood to do broadway plays which are only aired in new york for the audience so you'll never see the light of day for these performances well they're not aired at all they're not i mean they're taped sometimes and and reproduced but it's a live theater show it's like Say you and me go to the Landmark Studio and some of the greatest actors in the world are up in front of us on stage doing, doing a performance. So you don't ever make your bones on Broadway. You go to Broadway after success. Mm, no, it depends. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's, it's a different journey for everybody. But you, like the way Marlon Brando did it, it was he made his way in New York and got famous in Streetcar Named Desire on Broadway and then made his way into Hollywood. Like a lot of actors do either or like an actor will get famous on in movies and then decide he wants to try out broadway and go over to broadway and you can make a lot of money doing that too or vice versa an, an actor will get famous in new york and then try to go into movies so it's it's how really would, how would you get famous in broadway like say now obviously when brando's time it was probably a little bit different in terms of becoming made because there's people all in New York that just did it like, you know, all the all the big newspapers go to these shows and write reviews and cover it. People they I mean, they're packing in people like what was it that the show um, that the the Book of Mormon or was that recently like they were sold out for three years straight. That means that every single night for three years, at least three to four hundred people watched that show. So it, among Hollywood types. <clears throat> it's considered that they're, they're kind of uh, achieving an elite status when they go on Broadway. Is... Well, there's this, uh, there's this connotation that New York actors and Broadway is a much more artistic endeavor and Hollywood is much more entertainment centered. It's not as artistic. Usually it's much more like fodder for the masses. Like you can be, you can right. be an, you can be an idiot and a bad actor and get famous in Hollywood. Whereas in New York, you have to deal with psychological uh, nuances of emotion on stage and, and really turn your soul out every night. So to, to take a quote from this movie, 
they're celebrities in Los Angeles or Hollywood and they're <clears throat> actors in Broadway. You're yeah. not a celebrity, you're an actor. As you yeah, say. that's that's like the generic uh, label of the two towns. But of course you get both of which in both worlds. Okay, see this obviously all seems so on the surface to you and, and obvious probably, but to someone like me, I don't know what, I know mm-hmm. Broadway is a place that they do plays, but then you hear about famous actors going to do Broadway plays or producing Broadway plays. So it's yeah. almost like a secret society that you kind of have well, to know about in it's New much, York. It's much more common now, but it's like, you know, people from all around the country go to New York just to go to Broadway shows. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's the mo- it's where the most money is invested in live theater. So you have all these theaters up and down, like you can go see, uh, you know, 50 shows on broadway going on at a time right so there's 50 movies playing every night but they're live theater like where else in where else in the world can you do that i mean i don't know I've, nowhere seems that, like a place nowhere that you could so broadway is not just one playhouse right broadway is like no broadway a section of broadway, playhouses? broadway is the stretch of the road broadway in new york and uh, in around Times square area and broadway is where all the theaters are packed in and you know that's yeah that's where that's where the bright so, lights the bright lights of broadway that's where dreams are made so there's 50 plays a, a day all from different directors and yeah 50 different shows going on at least 50 uh, i would say a night okay and there's several different theaters then so who decides yeah, who gets to book those theaters the producers the theater you know whoever owns the theater they they'll they'll hire it out or pay, or pay it out the producers make the show oh god there's yeah. someone out there that owns a, a broadway theater and probably just rakes in billions of dollars oh yeah if you own a broadway theater you're a billionaire probably all right and and then even sometimes famous actors will produce a show and put it on broadway like sure the, like curb your enthusiasm has several seasons dedicated to that that very concept i think the one where he does a show with david schwimmer the producers yeah yeah they go to do a Broadway play. Yeah. And that's like, and even the show, the producers is all about producers on Broadway trying to make money. So I don't know if you've ever seen that show, but it's, yeah. All right. Well, then it seems like we've cleared this up. And in this movie, the way it relates to this movie is the main character here, Riggin, is trying to produce a Broadway play as a way to rejuvenate his, I guess, uh, career that, how would you describe his career? It's, uh, he was, he was obviously a household name because he was, you know, in a famous, uh, as a famous character known as Birdman. So I think that was his like rise, his stardom. And that's what his whole career has been built off of. But now he's trying to do something that's a little bit more artistic, a little bit more, you know, soul searching. So it's not that he's a failed actor. It's that he's not really proud of what he accomplished and he wants something deeper. He- yeah, and I think he's an aging actor that's like you know past his past his heyday of Hollywood. So he's trying to trying to regain some relevance and and make uh, make a hit or make it make it back on the scene. All right. Well, that's the gist of the movie is that Riggin is our protagonist and he's trying to make it back on the scene, as you said. And we'll get into that after the break. Do 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 do. Marlon Brando is the champion actor to all actors. 
So now in this opening scene, we get our proper introduction to Mr. Riggin. I don't really like the name Riggin. I'll just say it now. I'm going to have to say it a hundred times. It's not a fun name to say. Riggin Thompson. Riggin Thompson. But Riggin here is levitating in front of an open window in his underwear. (laughs) And he also has like uh, telekinetic powers, it seems like. He can move things with, you know, swipes of his hand. He can move things across the room. And but this is seemingly to us as the audience only when he's alone, and I don't want to say too much about this yet without you know it comes into play yeah. a lot no, that's, throughout the movie. That's what that's what's going on. We 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 cut in and he's literally meditating and levitating while in the meditation pose, and yeah, that's that's how we cut in. That's all we know. That's that's all we know. And if it seems like we're jumping from scene to scene, it's because as we've already mentioned, the camera is just panning and following. Riggin as he goes from place to place and time is elapsing but not on the screen so he'll go from you know eating breakfast to his midday routine within the span of a couple of seconds and the camera never cuts it's really interesting and weird the way they do yeah. it yeah yeah or it'll be like yeah get him down here when it when it introduces uh what's his name um Edward mike. norton's character mike and he goes get him in here and then the camera pans up over the balcony and comes back down he's already down there talking in the theater it's just like a continuous shot but we have to believe that at least a few hours has elapsed yeah if not several days have gone yeah. by but here at the beginning we learned that Regan has a kind of a bitchy daughter slash assistant she works for him and they have a rough relationship you learn right in the opening scene she's just like yeah whatever I'll get you these. He wants to get some flowers and, and she yeah. says, ah, they don't have them, whatever. It's just a really off yeah. relationship. And she just said, and she closes the, the, the face chat with, I fucking hate this job. He's also producing the play, which we've talked about extensively. And the play has four main actors. I kind of got a streetcar vibe from the play itself with the four of them sitting at the table, kind of like uh, Brando and Mitch and Stella and yeah. I could see that. I, I mean, I don't know. They they keep referencing a writer. I don't know if it's a real writer or not. Carver? It, it is. I looked it up. The play that they're performing is a real a real play. Oh, okay. All right. Cool. So I didn't do much more research than that, but I did find that it, it is something called uh, You Don't Know Love or something. I don't remember what it's called, but Carver is a real author and that's a real play. Okay. Yeah. So the shittiest actor among the four is this guy named Ralph. No one wants him there, but he is cast as one of the leads. He's struck in the head by a light fixture after giving a horrible acting performance. And, <laughs> and now he needs replaced. Yeah. And the best part is as soon as the light falls, it's like everybody jumps up to go help him. And Michael Keaton's character, uh, Regan, just gets up and starts walking out of the room. And he's already complained about his performance. And he's just like, get me another fucking actor. <laughs> And then yep. he then in, he's talking to Zach Galifianakis' character, Jake, and he says, that wasn't an accident. What do you mean? I made that happen. And he goes, Are you, have you been drinking? <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting to me, actually, because I didn't catch that until the second time. But with those telekinetic powers that we mentioned, you know, he mentions having them to other people in the, in the film several times, and they just brush him off like, yeah, I'm going to pretend you didn't say that or, or whatever yeah. you say, man. And also, right before the light falls, he looks up and glances up at the light. And then, like, while the guy's giving his shitty speech. Yeah, I think all we can say about it is that's what happened. So he claims to have caused it to happen. And 
no one else believes him, but it did happen. Basically, for me, a, a lot of this comes down to what's real and what's not, and yeah. what's what's in his head and what's not, and that's what, pretty interesting to me. Yeah, is it delusion or is it magic, uh, like magical yep. stuff? You know, and we I don't know if we ever truly find out, but we'll get to that later on. Mm-hmm. We have for a few. Na- we have a few clues. Yep. For now, <clears throat> Riggin delegates what needs to happen to uh, his staff, which includes Zach Galifianakis' character, Jake. He claims to be his best friend, but he's also like an attorney slash lawyer for him. Yeah. Yeah. And for the first of many times, Riggin consults a separate persona, which is like a voice in his head. It's the voice of the Birdman. And the Birdman kind of taunts and criticizes Riggin, but also he enables him in the, in the sense that, Hey, if we work together, we can, we can squash everybody. We, you know, we can, these people don't know what they're working with when they're working with us. Yeah. And he's got like a deep gr- gruff voice. He's like, these people don't know what they got. And all that. Yeah. I mean, he's in the opening scene too. He's like, he just says a bunch of stuff. He's like, what are we doing here? How did it come to this? Smells that, like balls. Smells like balls. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, it, it's this, voice that's going on in Michael in uh, Riggins head so and I think when we're watching this it's we're fully led to believe that this is in his head and it's like a mental illness yeah I really like how he he uses his powers here to smash up the dressing room a little bit because he's pissed Mm -hmm. and then Jake walks in his agent he's and it looks like a typical Hollywood you know superstar meltdown Mm -hmm. when you see the aftermath of the room but we saw it happen, and he was using these magical powers to, to do yeah. it. So Lifting cool. up, he lifts up his makeup kit and throws it against the wall and slams it. Smashes the light bulbs in yeah. with his fingers. Yeah, Pretty cool. But he also meets with the media in a scene probably written by other actors, for other actors. They really make the media and, and movie critics in particular out to be the most villainous things in the world. I don't necessarily agree with that. Well, I mean, I get what they're going at, you know. What's uh, what do you what do you risk being a critic? Not much, you no, know. You know, they're, they're out much. there. They're out there creating something. Like I, I, I feel there's no place for critics. I, I mean, I get what they do, and people are interested in it, and they want to read in it. But I don't like to criticize artists in general because I would never tell an artist to stop doing their art. You know what I mean? I would never discourage an artist to stop doing their art because art's just good. It's good for people to do. Like I would just not watch their art if I didn't like it or listen to their music if I don't like it or whatever. So I, I don't like, I, I'm not a fan of critics, but well, that, I get a, what they're saying. But I also understand that like, they're not the worst people in the world either. Yeah, that's a fair point. And they are risking nothing. But on the flip side, the reward for an actor is, far greater than any critic is ever going to be rewarded aside yeah. from like roger ebert you know he's yeah. not a billionaire like some of these movie stars are so you take the risk but you get the reward the risk and the reward are, are greater i guess and you're a public figure when you're an actor so i don't think you should be above criticism but at the same time it, it can reach a point where it's too harsh and really unnecessary so i kind of yeah. see both sides of the fence there i mean you know i guess you know if you want to say we are critics, we are critics. We, we critique all these movies and do that. But I, I would never tell a, a person to not do what they're doing. Even if they're doing bad art or bad things that I consider bad, you know, I would never say stop doing that. I would just be like, oh, God, I can't I can't take this. But I look at it like sports. I have no problem saying that 
Mason Rudolph as a horrible quarterback. I don't want him to give up his dreams and not be a quarterback anymore, but maybe play yeah. in a different league where you're more suited. You know, it's I don't feel like I'm being mean. He's compensated yeah. for being in the league, but you got yeah. you can be critical of of things like that. I think and, sure, and sure. not be a bad person for it. Yeah, I agree. Good. So I win the podcast. No, I disagree. Now <laughs> I, I, I take it back. I disagree. Well, they do make uh, this movie critic in particular in this movie. She is the primary villain if this movie has such a thing as a villain. We don't meet her here yet, but there is a, a focal villain, a media yeah. villain that we'll meet later on. Yeah. For now, he meets the news media, and they're, I mean, absolutely horrible. He gives yeah. these answers, and then they run right through it. But we get the idea here that essentially Riggin resents the idea of this, the, his success being tied to Birdman. Yeah, and the media is the worst media. Like, one of the girls asked him a question. He's like, is it true you've been injecting pig semen into your face? What? <laughs> to, keep it, to keep it younger and fresher looking. No, that's not true. Oh, so you, you're going to deny it. He's like, well, who said that? And he's like, it was tweeted. By who? By Prostate Smile something, some, some Twitter name. And he's like, what? No. So he says, I'm don't gonna... deny it. Don't write anything about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. She's like, then I'm going to say you deny it. And he's like, no, don't write anything about Why would you write anything about that? And the other guy is basically digging into him for saying, just saying like, yeah, are you, are you, are you trying to hold on to something? You're trying to hold on. And then there's a Japanese new crew, news crew in there that doesn't understand what he's saying. He says, well, yeah, that's why I, I didn't do Birdman 4. And the Japanese go, guy goes, Birdman 4? Oh, you're doing Birdman 4? Oh, Okay. <laughs> And like yeah. it's just it's just to give you an idea of how misconstrued all of the quotes and everything you say can go to the media. Yep, and they can be. So that that's a that was kind of a cool scene, <clears throat> but it jumps from that now to the crew and particularly an actress named Leslie, and she's the one played by Naomi Watts. They're all working to replace Ralph, who has been severely injured by the falling light, and she has someone that she's dating, her boyfriend who's also a famous actor named Mike and that's Edward Norton's character. He's apparently a big deal, but he's also a known diva an acting diva. Yeah. Well, she, she says something to the effect of, she was like, I thought he was doing that other thing. He goes, no, he quit. Did he quit or did he get fired? Well, when it's Mike, it's usually a bit of both. (laughs) Here's a question for you and in your years of acting and being around theater and plays and movies or whatever, everything you've been around, have you ever been around any major acting divas? Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, the, the acting world is full of people that are just completely ego driven. And like, I can't, I can't even lie. I've probably been that person before. So, you know, like when I was, when I was doing college productions and I was getting like all the leads of my college production, there were probably times where I acted like an egotistical prick, you know? That sucks, man. Yeah, yeah. It's just, uh, it's something about people handing you accolades or being known. Like, I mean, I was small town famous in the the school town that I went to because everybody came to the shows and saw me, right? You know? So it was just like something that does something to you where it just makes you, it makes other people, like I, I noticed like the teachers in my classes all of a sudden wanted me to answer questions and they were asking me things and like like my opinion mattered and i didn't know anything more than anyone else and probably even less because i was not very dedicated <laughs> i was not very dedicated to my studies but i was yep. pretty good at, i was pretty good at bullshitting my way through stuff and you know i appeared confident so it 
it drove it into a weird, weird area. Yeah. Gets well, weird. Yeah, I can see that. That's pretty funny though. You hear these stories of these backstage like travel plans that some of these actors and musicians have to have. Like red M and M's only. I think I read about some musician. Yeah, that's all. That I've heard about that too. Yeah. That's insane to think that people really genuinely feel <laughs> like they have to have these things. Like that's way, way far into it, though. Yeah, some people I think just do that to see how much they can get away with, and then I don't know. Some people, once you get to that level of fame, too, you you probably disconnect from any sort of real connection with other people, like. People all around you are trying to use you. People all around you don't know who's real, who's fake. Like I know Marlon Brando talks about that in his biography or his autobiography, where he, he talks about all of a sudden people that always called him like his nickname was Bud. People that always called him Marlon were now calling him Bud. People that always called him Bud were now calling him Marlon. Like it's just people change around fame and they look at you in a whole different way and you don't know who to trust anymore. Yeah, you often hear people say that they wouldn't wish fame on anybody. It's a, it's a curse. And uh, I, in a way I could believe that. Yeah. Now I'm imagining you sitting backstage and Davis and Elkins demanding small pepperoni roll or the large pepperoni rolls only. Yeah. I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think of like a diva moment that I did. I'd have to think, I'd have to think hard about that. I don't know. I, I was pretty like friendly with everybody though, for the most part, like I tried to remain very down to earth. I did notice a lot of people were, jealous of me and i got a lot of weird strange emotions and like all the guys in the department had an underlying competitive jealousness going on and i i just wanted to be friends and hang out like but it was it was a weird it was a weird time in my life for sure well i brought this up to try to get you to bury some other actors and instead you just ended up burying yourself the whole time so that's yeah. a way to stay strong on being anti-critics and you won't even criticize the divas that you worked with just just no, yourself. yeah, just myself. Yeah, I was yeah. the biggest diva I ever worked with. <laughs> well, you're the biggest diva of this podcast too. I'll, I'll give you that. That's right. And where's my dish of M and M's? God damn it! They're in the mail. They're coming. Thank you. Which color do you want? Uh, red, green, okay. green. You which one? Go which one make you viral? Green makes you viral. Okay, green. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, keeping with the uh, movie here, getting back onto the movie. They do hire Mike, which was Leslie's boyfriend and the diva actor. And even though he does rub everyone the wrong way right away, including Riggin, he is clearly an upgrade over Ralph in terms of acting. Yeah, yeah, he's a top-notch actor. I like the way they're able to show that in this movie, what's good acting and what's bad. We discuss it a lot, Yeah, but they show you in this movie, this is bad, this is good. Yeah, because even the, the Ralph character, it's not horrible. You just can tell it's not good. Yeah, you know they even I mean? stop mid-scene, and he's like, ah, Ralph, man, you're supposed to be showing this emotion. Just give it to me a little harder. And yeah. they use, uh, it's kind of a repeating theme. They say, well, I was trying to show you a range of emotions. I yeah. think they mentioned that two or three times in this movie. Yeah, they mentioned it later at one part particularly. But but then as soon as Edward Norton's character, Mike, gets in there, he – he says, all right, let's just let's do some of this, this show. And he's like, oh, I don't expect you to know it right away. He's like, no, no, uh, no, let's go. We got to work on it. Previews coming up in two nights. We've got to let's go. Let's work on it. And it's funny the way that the way that he works is really interesting to watch because it does. This is this is the fun part for me. Like when at, when when I was acting like the rehearsal period, and the, the, the discovery process of your character and what your character would do and how they would react is the f- most fun part. 
And this kind of was a blast of the past being like, oh my God, that's so much fun. Like the, the performance part for me was whatever, like that was the finished product. All the fun stuff happened up, in to, up until that, yeah, when you're analyzing what you're going to do. I can see that because he, you can see, you know, he just uncovers that character so quickly and immediately Riggin knows like, all right, this is the guy, even though he's an asshole, this is the guy that needs to have this role. And it's yeah. the way that, you know, they're just the two of them, they're talking, but he just turns it on. Yeah, right. he he goes like, "What am I? Am I am I saying that? Yes, okay." Like, he's like, he's talking it through the process of of what's going on. Why is this character saying that? Is he deflecting from this? Is he deflecting from Mary? Well, what's the point of saying that? Why? What? It's just breaking down each line and getting to why? Why? You know, why are you saying it? Well, there's a point later in the script where this character Mike says that. He feels like he's lying all the time, except when he's on stage. Like yeah. that—that's what he lives for. Almost is is acting and method acting. Yeah, he says everything he does up there is the truth, and everything in like outside of there is bullshit, pretty much. Yep. And he says that in a conversation with Riggin's daughter Samantha, or Sam, as she likes to be called. Mm-hmm. And here in this scene, she comes into work. She forms a very quick bond with Mike, but it's kind of a strange bond it's one of those like passive aggressive things where you both pretend to it's be little, annoyed with each other but it's a little standoffish sort of yeah a little standoffish but you can tell they're both interested in each other too and yeah it's really awkward when he gets naked in front of her and then his real girlfriend walks in and she shit talks sam not knowing that sam is also in the room that yeah <laughs> that's a strange little scene well, and he like he immediately shows his douchebag. That's the fun part of this character is he's such a good actor, but he's also uses that and just goes around and pisses everybody off and and like gets everybody angry. He's just an antagonizer. So like he's walking behind her and she says, "Oh, I saw you in that." He's, she's like, "I know who you are. I saw you in that play. You were excellent." And he's like, "Yeah, you have an excellent ass." <laughs> and it's just she's like, "Are you serious? Like really?" <laughs> And so, and then he gets completely butt naked in front of her in, in the dressing room or whatever. And his girlfriend comes in, starts talking trash about her and she's there listening to the whole thing. Yeah. There's a whole little subplot of it's not much of a love triangle really, but you can tell there's a thing going on with Mike and Sam, but then Mike also has his thing with his real girlfriend. And then there's one final little side plot, which ultimately meant nothing in the big story that I could tell, but, that's the the fourth actress. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That's, Where they uh, just randomly Riggins make girlfriend. out. They randomly make out, and the, um, the rest of that story must have got left on the cutting room floor. Yeah, I didn't understand why that went nowhere. But that you wasn't know, what I was referring to. <laughs> it was I was referring to when Riggins' girlfriend says that she's pregnant. Oh yeah, that too. Yeah, and that's just adding stress to his life. It's like it's like just trying to show how stressed out this dude is right now, and like all the bullshit that's going on around him. So what did you say that character's name was? Laura? Uh, was that Laura or is that Sylvia? I think that's Laura. And that's Riggins' girlfriend in real life. And she's also one of the actresses in, in the play. Yeah, that's Laura. Yeah. Laura. Okay. And she tells Riggin that she's pregnant. And like you said, it just adds to the stress. Yeah. And it's like she does it on purpose. She like she waits to right before the show to tell to drop this news that, oh, yeah, I missed my period for two weeks. And as my friend Rachel pointed out, she's known for two weeks. She's known for whatever. She could have picked a better time to release this information, right? Yeah. And instead, it's right before they're about to go on. She, like, grabs his hand and throws it on her vag and starts, pulls it up to her tits and is like, 
kissing him. She's like, well, opening performance. Let's go have some fun. And she just, it was like, she's just stirring the pot, just like making some trouble. And I've, I've, yeah, it's just, it's just the backstage drama that goes on during plays. Yeah. There is a fair amount of backstage, backstage drama. Yeah. But before we go any further, I thought we were done with this, but we're not. I've got one more question about the Broadway. So they're doing these previews. They call them previews. But but there's a live audience out there, and they seem to be charging admission. So why do the pre why are the previews not matter, and why is opening night any uh, different? Previews are are known as like a rehearsal period. So sometimes they will stop and start and go back, and it's not like a it's not a full finished production. It's basically the last few dress rehearsals. So but they, they charge admission for these though. Yeah. Yeah. They charge admission. They probably do like a select amount of seating and charge to people to come in to see it or whatever. So they have an audience and they can get the feel of how, how the audience is going to react and you know what, when they're going to laugh, when they're going to cry, all that stuff. That's interesting. So they don't take it very seriously at all. Do you think it's something that like happens <clears throat> in this movie? Well, they, ever they, before? they do, but it's more just like another rehearsal. Like it's okay for shit to go wrong and to stop and start and to go back and redo things. And they, it's interesting to the audience too, because they're, they feel like they're in on the rehearsal process of it all. But the movie critics that matter would never come to a preview. No, no. Okay. They're, they're waiting until opening night and they're seeing the real show, the real. Yeah. The finished product. Okay. Well, we got that cleared up too then, because I just found it strange that there was an audience out there, but they were acting like, uh, you know, none of it mattered and they were breaking character and going off script and things like that. Yeah. So now it's the first preview, the night of the first preview. And right away, Mike goes off script because they've exchanged the gin that his character is supposed to be drinking with water. He gets all pissed off, goes on a drunken tirade, makes a scene. And Riggin, as the director of this, this production, demands that he's fired. But his producer, Jake, talks him down. Yeah, and the the interesting part is that he's drinking actual gin during it, and he gets pissed off in the middle of the scene because he replaced his gin, and he's like, who the fuck are you to take away what I need to get this scene done? And he says something about Carver left his liver on every fucking page. He was drunk when he wrote this book, so yeah. Is it considered unprofessional to drink if your character's supposed to be drinking? <clears throat> yeah. Every time, it's never a reason to do it. Yeah, it's definitely considered unprofessional. But if you're a method actor at that level, probably a director is not going to tell you not to do it because you've done enough stuff that works successfully that they'll let you do whatever you want to do. Well, the thing that stuck out to me in this scene is after Jake talks him down, he says, your fly's down, by the way, which means that his fly was down the entire time he was delivering the monologue on stage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And here in this scene, this is where we meet his ex-wife. I didn't write down her character's name, but the actor was Amy Ryan. And we get a little bit of insight into his failures as a husband and father. Again, much like The Wrestler, we don't get any of this backstory truly. We get a, a little bit, but mm -hmm. we learn through these other characters how shitty he used to be when he was Birdman. Yeah, mostly we learn through him just constantly apologizing and trying to say sorry about shit. But also he comes off as really self-absorbed a lot and sort of not genuine, I guess. Yep. And he reveals that he's got a lot of his finances tied up into this play. 
and he has to refinance one of their homes that was supposed to be given to his daughter to produce to to finance the play. I guess they're having to go deep into their coffers to hire Mike and to do some other things. So a lot's riding on the success of this play for him financially. Yeah, he's and now that he's signed Mike and on the show, it's put even more stress because he's got to spend a lot of money on him, I think, too. Yep. Yeah, and he can't just fire Mike, which is what he wants to do right away. Instead, he has to make amends with Mike. And so they go to a bar together and they bond over their love of acting. I wouldn't say they really bond, but they at least reconcile to the point where they can work together. Yeah. And the important thing here is Riggan explains to him that the author of the the play that they're doing, the, the guy you named Carver, mm-hmm. actually wrote him a note once on a cocktail napkin saying to you know, keep his chin up or whatever. I forget what the note said. <clears throat> it it said, really thank, a, thank you for an honest performance, I think. Yeah, and it was really important to Riggan, and it was enough to make him want to keep acting forever. Yeah, and it's funny because uh, Mike points out to him, he goes, it's on a cocktail napkin. He's like, yeah. He's fucking drunk when he wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I think that really impacts Riggan and the way he views himself and his worth later yeah. on. Because yeah. he leaves that cocktail nap- uh, napkin laying down later like it's a piece of trash. So it, yeah, Mike, he, Mike he really hit him that. hard with that. Yeah, and Mike has a nice little uh, uh, exchange with the... So at the other end of the bar, Tabitha, uh, which is the critic, the critic writer that's He's like, the only thing that's important is whether she likes this play. She decides whether we float or whether we sink. It might be appropriate to describe her as the sinister New York Times critic. (laughs) That's that's a callback. Since we're doing Batman, we're back to Batman a little little bit here. Birdman, Batman, Michael Keaton. The sinister sinister Mrs. Tabitha. Yep, sinister Tabitha. And it is a brief exchange, but we do get the introduction to the uh, evil and sinister New York Times critic. Yeah. So here's the scene. You mentioned this scene to me earlier, and it's Riggan going back to the studio, and he finds his daughter Sam smoking pot. Well, he doesn't find her, but he smells it, and he puts two and two together. Yeah. He, he kind of flies off the handle at her for doing this. and he well, is... she, Because she has a drug problem. Or oh, she, okay. had, she had a drug problem. She went to rehab. I was wondering why he got so mad about that. I, it didn't even occur to me like that's tied to the yeah, real yeah. drugs that, you know, people always say it's a gateway drug. I think that's a bullshit. Well, yeah, it's like, you know, pot. She doesn't take it very seriously, but I think she was doing other harder drugs and she went to rehab for it. And now she's like fresh out of that. So he kind of uses it as a relapse sort of thing. So she fell off the wagon by smoking this pot. Okay. Yeah, a little bit. Well, that makes sense then for why he would get so upset. I don't know why I didn't put that together, but yeah, it's mentioned multiple times. So, well, I, I knew that. I just I was like, why is this? I thought it was just like because he's her dad. He was mm-hmm. getting mad about her smoking pot, or she was at work. I didn't well, remember the, about the, the rehab. point. The point of the scene becomes he says, "What are you trying to do this to me for?" And she goes, "Oh, do it to you. It's about you." Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, this is my career. This is my this is my life. I have a chance to do something good. And he turns it about him, which she kind of, I think, always blames him for. So she blames she she I mean, a lot of this whole story is about ego and about how we let it control us. And that's he he is constantly like bringing he's not a good father because he's focused on himself a little bit more than he should be as his daughter and wife. 
Yep. And she definitely lets him have it in the scene. She calls yeah. him irrelevant, insecure. She calls him pathetic at one point. And the saddest part from his perspective is when she's done and she leaves, you can see on his face that he recognizes all of this as being true. Yep. Yeah. And she just, she just gives him the, the sad, honest truth. And when she leaves and he's by himself, he lightly uses his telekinetic powers again. And then he smokes some of the weed and gets high. Yeah. <laughs> not bad. Not bad. Not bad. So, so now it's time for another preview. The second preview. And this time when they're doing it, there's a scene where Mike and Leslie, who keep in mind is his real life girlfriend, but in this play, I guess she's just a lover of his, but he's trying to actually have sex with her on stage (laughs) as the (laughs) ultimate form of method acting. Yeah. He's there laying in the bed, getting ready to be spun around and put on stage in the bed. And he goes, I'm hard. She's like, no, you're just a little inconsiderate of some people's feelings. He's like, no, no, I, I feel like I'm getting hard. And he grabs her hand and puts it on his dick. <laughs> He's like, yeah, let's, 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 let's actually fuck. It'll be so real. It'll be, <laughs> yeah. And so he's basically kind of almost raping her on in, in the scene, but she, she doesn't want to do it, but I don't think he actually ever does anything. They don't actually ever have it, but no, but uh, he, he does get a giant boner, which steals the scene and effectively takes <laughs> yeah. the spotlight away from Riggin in his monologue. Yeah. Which is kind of funny. The play ends with Riggin blowing his head off, and they have this prop. It's like this fake gun that makes blood look like it's coming out. And that's the way that the play is designed to end. So he blows his head off, and then the mm-hmm. audience claps. Yeah, after he finds this girl in bed with a guy. Yeah, so we got to point that out because they do this a couple other times as well, and it's it becomes a thing, mm-hmm. becomes part of the story. But the real drama happens backstage afterward. All of the side stories that we mentioned just a little bit ago, they all continue their their subplots here. Leslie and Mike now they break up because she's pissed about the rape attempt on the stage, <laughs> and then as you naturally. You pointed this one out earlier. For some reason, Leslie and Riggin's girlfriend start making out. Yeah, she's just she's like comforting her, and and Rick Riggin comes in there and and says something to her, and he says, I, "I need you. You're beautiful, and you're great, talented, and I couldn't do this without you." And then the other girl goes, "He's never said anything like that to me in two years," and they start comforting each other, and then. It's just this weird moment where they lock eyes and they have their hands locked and they start making out. And she goes, what are you doing? Nothing. And she starts kissing her and she goes, do it again. <laughs> starts ma- kissing her. And they, they start making out heavily. And this is never expounded upon at all. But to me, it just it's a great backstage introduction to people who don't who've never worked backstage in a theater because backstage in the theater, you have all these people that are going through like emotional stuff and they're getting emotional on stage and coming back off stage and on stage. And they're all like egotistical trying to fuck each other. And there's so many showmances that happen and they're dramatic and other people are overdramatic. And it's just like this inability of actors backstage to separate work and play like i don't know what it is that drew me to the scene i loved so much and the fact that they didn't pick it up at all i kind of like that too because it just goes nowhere and it just shows how flippant and errant these things happen back there so you think that's what they were going for is kind of give you a glimpse of the 
random backstage romances and dramas that happen that ultimately lead to nothing? I guess. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's what they were going for, but that's what I got out of it. So, Because, I mean, yeah. for, from my perspective, I was like, oh, this is kind of an interesting storyline. But then it never, like you said, it never went anywhere at all. Yeah, that was, doesn't, that's the end of it. Yeah, I don't know. So it's just like, it's just like a little moment. It's just, it's just like all these, all these actors are just willing to, to just wreck each other's lives <laughs> just for, for what? Yeah, I don't know. Well, there's another scene, kind of a backstage drama scene where Mike goes to Riggin and he complains that the prop gun looks too fake and he demands that he, show some professionalism and some self-pride and get a better-looking prop gun for his big scene where he shoots himself. But he says, other than that, though, I thought the crowd was pretty good tonight, huh? Yeah, the crowd was kind of into it. Yeah. I thought the second night went a lot better than the first, other than the boner. You know, yeah, it wasn't yeah. that bad. It wasn't as much, other than, you know, the attempted rape. So up to this point, the entire hour or so of the movie that we've gotten through, has been shot like one continuous scene and the camera does not stop moving the entire time until finally now there's a scene between Mike and Sam on this rooftop where they sit still. And I was so relieved when this scene started happening. I was like, thank God, like I could take a breath. It's another storyline that ultimately petered out. I think it's this weird mini romance between Sam and Mike. She clearly wants to bone Mike, but Mike has known erectile dysfunction, which he openly talks about several times and has alluded to several times. So he claims that's keeping him from forming a relationship with Sam. Yeah. And she was like, oh, you had you didn't seem to have any problem problem getting it up down there. <laughs> so, yeah, but it's it's also about like uh, Mike's also an uh he's attracted to her youthful exuberance, I think. And, uh, so, cause at one point he says a line about, I take your eyes out and put them in my head and, and, you know, so I look, can see the, so through I your can, young eyes. So I can see this, these streets like I, like I did back when I was your age. I kind of thought that he was bullshitting her though, that he didn't really, like at one point he says she's larger than life and she sticks out and she stands out. And she's like looming over the crew when she's there. And I didn't get that at all. I felt like she was kind of slinking around. And I felt the reason that maybe he was doing that was a way to fuck with Riggin more because they're very antagonistic toward each other throughout most of the movie. A little bit, but I don't think he kind of like ever throws that in Riggin's face. I think it's more he's just like trying to fuck her. You think that's what it was? Yeah, I think he's just trying to sleep with her. And he's just trying to, like, his other girlfriend, Naomi Watts, or Leslie, is moving on from him. And he's just, he's just like an egotistical erection walking around trying to fuck things. So you don't think that he, he actually meant the nice things that he says about her? No matter what his motivation is, he has an ulterior motive. It's either just to sleep with her or to, uh, to piss off Riggin, but... Yeah, yeah. That's, I, I don't think it's intended to piss off Riggin as much as it is just to feed his own ego. All right, but he's not, like... Uh thinking she's this great woman that he claims that she is well i don't know maybe she is attractive she's very attractive and she does seem to have something like you know interesting about her like she's not just she's not just attractive because she looks cute she's attractive because she's you know got this oddball personality sort of going on yeah well mike (laughs) mike's just such an egomaniac and he says he's lying most of the time except when he's on stage so 
I found myself mm-hmm. wondering what his character's true intentions were a lot of the times that he's yeah. not seen. Yeah, that's true too. Well, they do uh, kind of bond, but they don't have sex. And uh, that scene goes into a scene now where Riggin reads a New York Times article in which Mike has stolen his acting backstory. <laughs> so, so that scene that we mentioned at the bar where Riggin says that Carver wrote him a note on a cocktail napkin, Mike stole that word for word and got it published in a newspaper. Yeah, pretty low down. Pretty low down. And then to further the shittiness for Riggin, his girlfriend reveals that she's actually not pregnant, and then she seemingly kind of breaks up with him there or severs their relationship. I guess because of the way he reacted when she first told him that she was pregnant. Yeah, well, we'll find out later that, you know, it has to do with complications or whatever. But, yeah, she he says something. He's just he he's just completely insensitive towards her and doesn't really give a shit about her. And it's pretty obvious. And she's kind of always on the receiving end of that. So she breaks it off with him. And this causes another scene where Riggin wants to talk with the Birdman. Well, he, actually, he doesn't want to talk with the Birdman voice. The Birdman voice kind of creeps into his consciousness here. Yeah, Birdman's always kind of buttoned in. He's just like, shut up, shut up. No, we weren't happy. We're, we're not. We don't like it. Shut up. So he's trying to shut the Birdman up, but the Birdman is, will not be shut up. And this leads to a confrontation with Mike. Birdman's telling Riggin, this young guy's trying to get the better of you. He stole your backstory. He's stealing your play. And, and now you've got to do something about it. So Riggin goes and he gets Mike out of a tanning bed. Yeah. So it's, it's the battle of the egos at this point, because he's calling him out because he, he took, stole his story and his backstory, but it's like, why are you angry? Unless you care. He's trying to hijack the show. He thinks and take all the credit. And he's worried that he's not going to get the credit that he's that he's due. But Mike's character is just completely reckless and doesn't give a fuck who he's hurting, you know, throughout the entire movie for the most part. And it leads to a fist fight between the two of them, Mike and uh, yeah, Reagan. a pathetic, a pathetic attempt at a fist fight. It is a pretty pathetic little fight. I remembered it when I watched the trailer before I watched the movie, and that was the scene. I was like, "What the hell is this? Why is he in his underwear? And then why are they having this like slap fight?" Yeah. The uh, tanning bed's an interesting thing, too, because a few scenes earlier they say, oh, yeah, the tanning bed is here. And he's like, tanning bed? What are you talking about? Mike ordered it. He said his character has to be a redneck. <laughs> and so he's just laying in a tanning bed. And I, I, in, me, in my head, I'm thinking he's just using it as an excuse to have a tanning, to get a tanning bed sent there. Like, Why would a redneck have a tanning bed? That's yeah, the exactly. least That's redneck a, thing ever. Yeah, no, I think it's just an excuse for him to get a tan. Well, after the fight, Mike goes back. I'm sorry, not Mike. Uh, Riggin goes back to his dressing room. And here, the Birdman really starts taunting him. And I think in this scene, as the audience, we're really supposed to get the idea that the Birdman is a mental illness that he's going through. He even says something like, no, this is a, uh, what's he say, characterization. Mal, mal something? This is a mental formation. Mental formation, yeah. He keeps saying, no, this is a mental formation. You're not here. Just shut up. You're so goddamn annoying. Yeah. But he, he ends up trashing his his studio as he's as he's doing this. Yeah. So he tries to quit completely, quit the play and say that this is not for him. But Jake, his friend and producer, comes in and he talks him out of it yet again. 
Yeah, and basically it feeds him a bunch of lies. He's like, this. there's people lined up for three blocks. Martin Scorsese's casting his new film. He's here. The Pope or the whoever is, you know, a bunch of people are here. And he and you can just see uh, Riggins' eyes light up when he finds out that all these people came to watch his show. And he starts going, all right, yeah, yeah, I guess I, I guess I could do it. All right. And that's all he needs to hear to get him back into it, you know. So Mike now goes out on the balcony again to see Sam and the camera slows down for me again. So both these scenes were kind of nice. Both times they did them. <laughs> Took a nice little break for you. You could relax. But this time Mike is way more receptive to Sam. And when she tries to hook up with him again, this time he reciprocates and he starts kissing her and he takes her even up to, well, she takes him up to this like balcony and it's implied. I think that they have sex. That's the reason I thought that maybe he was well, trying they, to mess yeah. with Riggin because he said no the first time, but then after he got into the fight with Riggin, then he suddenly says, yes, I will hook up with your daughter, essentially. Sort of, yeah. Well, maybe maybe it is a little bit of that. I mean, under the surface, I don't know. But, um, but yeah, they definitely hook up. Or, or they like, they're playing truth or dare up there on the on the roof, and then they come down, and they're up on the, I guess that's a, parapet sort of thing like i can't remember what that's called uh but it's uh they're behind they're up above the stage in the light and like where they hang the lights behind the stage and they start like they get they get down and start making out pretty fiercely like sex is is about to happen so is that the preordained boning spot among actors and crew well it looks like a good one too i mean the actors are notoriously horny people They'll, they'll do it anywhere i'm sure well, you're saying I'm sure, but I'm I'm actually expecting to Are you boot, asking? boots on the ground. You're asking <laughs> my my firsthand experience. Yeah, I mean, like, is that where they go? Is that where people sneak off to? Well, I, there was a uh, the so like in, at our theater in school, we had like a upstairs uh, a little black box theater behind us, like in the in the theater, but behind like the stage and set and everything. And I think sometimes some actors would sneak up there and you know make out, do whatever, do whatever they were doing. Fool around, I think, yeah. is a, the, that's the term that Sam fool uses. around is the term Sam is. Yeah, yeah. I I can neither confirm nor deny that I did that. All right, <laughs> well, fair <laughs> enough. Then we'll leave it at that. Yeah, but Sam and Mike do fool around, and probably more as uh, they've consummated their relationship seemingly now. Mm-hmm. And this is on the eve or the the very night of the final preview. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. So now we're at the big premiere. Well, no, no, we're not at the premiere yet. It's the final preview, which is a big preview because it's the last one before the opening night. And at that night's performance, Riggin accidentally locks himself out of the theater and his robe gets caught in the door. <laughs> this is an epic scene, though. This is an epic in a weird scene. It, it seemed yeah. like before he locked himself out, he was having some moment where he was considering something or feeling some specific well, emo- emotion. What's he feeling here? He sees he's he sees Mike and Sam flirting in the doorway, and he's already kind of on the edge of mental breakdown. And then he goes to get a cigarette, and he goes outside, and the door shuts and catches his robe in the door, so he can't really. Uh, he can't get the robe undone and nobody can hear him pounding on the door, but he knows his, his final scene's coming up. So he has to get out of the robe and he's just in tidy whiteies 
and then he's got to walk through <laughs> through Times Square in tidy whities through all these thousands of people around him, and he's just walking through. Of course, in Times Square, that's actually you know not that crazy because. I mean, I've gone there and seen people in their underwear before. So, but he's a famous celebrity as well. So, it's, yeah, that's yeah, why so, it gets so much attention. Yeah. So he, so he has to like come through and go through the front of the theater. He goes into the front of the theater and comes in through the front doors. Then he walks through and he pulls his hand up like a gun, and he's holding and pointing out this finger gun, and he goes and he's doing the whole scene, and he actually gives a pretty decent performance. <laughs> Yeah, it's a pretty epic scene, and the crowd seems to like it as well as they liked any other version of the show. So backstage, it's almost viewed as a triumph, but it is an epic scene. And one of my favorite little details of it is when he first starts walking, a fan recognizes him and asks him for an autograph. And rather than just keep walking, he just grabs it and signs it really quick just to get the guy off his back. And the guy says, hey, you're you're Reagan Thompson. Oh, come on, man. Don't be a dick. Give me an autograph. He's being the dick, and he says, "Don't be a dick, man." Like, no, yeah. you're the dick right now, asking this guy for his autograph. Like, yeah. leave him alone. My God, there's a there's a throughout this entire movie, there's a real element of of man versus world, you know, where the world is just kind of about to get this guy. So I will give you one theory that I had in this movie, and it was very mild, and I didn't put a whole lot of thought into it. But Jake, his producer, mm-hmm. he already had the one instance where the light fell down on the guy's head and he's worried about the guy suing. And then there's something else that happens later on with a prop that's very important to the plot. I almost felt like this guy, Jake, maybe had a very sinister side and was doing something like tampering with things backstage. Did you ever get that vibe at all? No. You didn't think Jake might've been a bad dude? No. Why would you think that? Well, he gets this emergency phone call, and you you never really know what it's about. I guess it's it's Ralph's... about it's about Ralph, the guy that broke his neck, the guy that the light fell on. All right, all right. Yeah, like I said, it was a very legless theory, but yeah, yeah. No, I don't think he's out because he's got as much money invested in the show. Like he's stressed to the max as well because you know um, Riggin has convinced him to do this instead of doing another movie. And so he's like, he says at one point, this is all about, you know, doing something big, creating something lasting, right? That's what you told me when you got, what got me out here to do this fucking thing. Well, the way he reacts at the end, which I can't say, you know, what happens yet, but the way his character is acting at the end kind of lended to the idea for me that maybe he had so much tied into this that he was willing to let something sinister happen or bad happen to, to succeed. Yeah, I mean, I don't know which I don't know about that, but uh, you could you could make a theory on that for sure. But I don't think he's causing anything sinister to happen. All right. Well, keeping with what we see, at least after the show, now Riggin goes backstage. He's oddly calm here, and he meets with his daughter Sam, and they sort of make up. They're kind of nice. They talk about their past, but they seem like they're kind of getting along now. Yeah, and he just goes back and starts eating lunch meat out of his fridge like nothing happened. And she's like, you okay? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm good, I'm good. This is good. This is really good. This is tasty. Yeah, he tries to offer her some food and and get along with her, and they do. But at this part and for most of the second half of the film, I kept thinking that this guy's not only on the edge of a mental breakdown, but on the edge of suicide. Yeah, yeah, we we get that feeling 
through from about this point on. And it's yeah, it's a pretty strong feeling that you're getting that, and maybe that Sam was picking up on that vibe too. Maybe that's why she started being nice to him because I didn't notice any big breakthrough moment where their relationship should have changed. Really, no. if any, if anything, she was almost impressed because he's now gone viral because he walked through the streets naked, and that's on YouTube. I don't think she dislikes him. I think she's just angry at the way life has worked out. And I, I don't think that she dislikes him. I think that she's just angry at him for not having his shit together as much as she would like him to have it together. And even in the scene before that, him, her and uh, Mike talk about, well, what did he really do to you? And she goes, well, it's just how he, like, he was never there. And, and then when he was there, he was trying to convince me that I was, that, that I was this special person. Which yeah, which isn't that bad at all. It's like that's not that. Which horrible, yeah, which isn't father. bad, but you, you, but it's it's just like you listen to that speech where she talks about no one is special, so it it kind of links up there. It's a stark contrast from the way she was last time the two of them were together as to now. Yeah, maybe yeah. she realizes it's not as much his fault as she thought. Well, he leaves his scene with her, and he now goes to the bar again. And here is one of my favorite scenes, or if not my favorite scene from the movie, is. He has this confrontation with the villainous critic, the sinister Mrs. Tabitha. I didn't write down her last name, but she promises to ruin his show basically out of spite because she says that he's not an actor and he's entitled. And she thinks that him walking through the street in his underwear was a publicity stunt. Yeah, she's uh, she's pretty cold, pretty cold to him. And he he gives a performance to her right there. And then, so I don't know, I don't know how much he's, this is another part where I'm like, I'm not sure if he's like putting on the scene or performing or if he's just, you know, being down to earth real. Oh, this is another scene where, you know, at the beginning where I thought Michael Keaton was involved in the writing of this script. And this is why, because I felt like this is something that every actor has wanted to say to their critics over the years in real life, this whole monologue that he gives where. You know, he says, you risk nothing. All you write are opinions that have no value. Yeah, you just label. You're just labeling you label things. Everything. You label things. And you don't talk label. about technique. Yeah. You don't talk about structure and purpose. You just label everything and you risk nothing. And I agreed with everything that he said. But at mm. the same time, I agreed with what she said to him in the sense that you're entitled. You're just trying to do this as a way to make yourself relevant again. She basically said the same thing that his daughter said to him before. So yeah. they He's, both made she, a good point. Yeah, no, they both have ar- a great arguments and nobody really wins the argument or loses the argument. So she she says, yeah, you've offended me by taking up space in a theater where otherwise could have a good performance could have been going on. You think you can just walk into this world because, you know, you're a, a star and you have all this carte blanche and you can just come in here and play actor and writer and director and do all that stuff. But you're, you're not an actor. You're a celebrity. Yeah. She says you've offended me by taking up this theater when it could have been used for something useful. Yeah. Which is really cold. Ultimately you're right that no one wins the argument, but ultimately she wins in the sense that her review will ruin his play and there's nothing he can do to change that. Yeah, for sure. And I think here, this is here where he leaves the napkin, right? He, the famous napkin yeah. that he carried with him for years. Well, he, he's had a couple drinks, then he leaves the nap. He brings her over a martini. They have the fight. 
he chugs the martini, takes some wa- folded up, like wadded up bills out of his pocket, throws it on there and leaves the napkin with the famous, with the quote from uh, Carver. So he'd been carrying that with him as a prize possession his entire career. And now he just leaves it at the bar to me, yeah. m- indicating even more that he's very on the edge of possibly suicide. You know, he, he, yeah, he's really definitely. lost his purpose. Yeah. And the next scene kind of furthers that. It's a very somber scene. And they do this scene. It's like a spoken word poetry, like this street prophet, you know, spouting out this doomsday stuff that seemingly applies to Riggins' life. Mm-hmm. But then in a funny twist, they actually show the guy and the street prophet was just auditioning for yeah. R- for Riggins. And, you notice he says the same exact lines that the other bad actor uh, said before. Are they? Yeah, the lines he, from the play. Well, no, the, the lines. What he's speaking is uh, Macbeth's monologue, final monologue before he fights Macduff. It, so he's speaking a famous Shakespeare monologue from Macbeth. But when after that he says, uh, he's like, "Did I did I go too much? Sorry, I was just trying to show you range. I I can tell you. I was, he says word for word what. Uh, oh, what Ralph had said. What yeah. Ralph says after he like before he get the light falls on his head. So we're meant to get that this homeless guy or this street prophet was auditioning for a role with Riggin so, or, or yeah, trying to we, get his attention? The way I took it is he he was doing that, like trying to act out and show his talent to somebody because he knew that Riggin was a famous person or whatever. Yeah, that's how I took it too. But the scene, the, the, what he's reciting is Macbeth's final monologue before he fights Macduff. So it's like that. that monologue also does make sense to what's going on where there's like this final resolution of Macbeth is just like, well, fuck it. It's, it's over. Life is done. I've made my decision and come what may. So that directly relates to the story. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was looking for stuff like this and that's why I did the minimal research on the play that they were doing. I felt like there's a lot tied into this that I don't understand yet because I don't realize what it's relating to within, you know, the context of the movie. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Like it's it's you got you got to kind of be in the know for what's what's happening. Like I only knew that because I actually did Macbeth in school. So I was like this oh this speech sounds familiar. And I was like, "Oh yeah, I did it." Like <laughs> so it's it's like a uh, basically him just saying Macbeth saying like it's at the point where the witch's prophecies have come true and Burnham Wood has come to Dunsinane and He's now going out to fight knowing that he's that the prophecy is about to be fulfilled and he's about to die. And he says something to the uh, to the um, point of come blow wind, come rack. At least we'll die with armor on our back. So So, it's like a last like a last stand kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Or or citation. Yeah. Life. Life is a tale of fear of I can't remember the exact sound and fury signifying nothing. So it's like it's talking about the futility of life and the futility of like uh, life as a poor player that struts upon the str- the stage and out out brief candle. Awesome. So yeah, so it's it's a uh, it's a really it's a really great monologue and uh, and it definitely pertains to to Riggin's situation. But in a nice twist, Riggin, whenever Riggin finds out that the guy is false and he's he's a phony that kind of cracks him even further. Like he could go even any further, but even the street prophets fake, you know, everything's fake. Yeah. Yeah. 
and so he's already he's already just purchased a pint of liquor and he's on his way to chug it down. Yep. So he he falls asleep on the street, and then the next day, totally hungover, he's walking down the sidewalk, and the Birdman shows up. And here we see him in physical form, and he's taunting Riggin once again. And this time, Riggin starts doing his telekinesis and superpower shit in public, and it seemingly is affecting other people. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much it's affecting other people. I had the subtitles on, and you can see other people saying lines like, he's flying through the air, or, or look at him up there. So, really? yeah, there are people within the public saying things to him, specifically commenting on him flying and, and doing the things that he's doing, the superpowers. Okay, all right. That's Interesting. What, yeah, that really threw me for a loop, because to me that almost confirmed hey, he's actually doing these things. But then I also told myself, maybe he's just hearing these voices. That doesn't mean that they're actually coming from someone else. Well, also, it, he doesn't, he, he's about to land at the theater, right? So he lands at the theater and walks in, but then a taxi driver chases him in and says, hey, you didn't pay for your taxi. Exactly, yeah. So, that, so that's the that's other side the biggest, of the argument. That, that's the biggest clue right there to me is that, that we, we see the delusion happening. Now we know it's a delusion because the cab driver obviously drove him there, even though we saw him fly. Well, that's some evidence. I don't think we know that it was a delusion, but that is some e- strong evidence that. Yeah. I mean, he could have been chasing after someone else, too, that taxi driver. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But I see what you're saying because there's no certainty on either side of it. And something yeah. else happened to later me. Where- to- that was the only time when somebody else sort of gives us any clue about, I mean, I didn't have the subtitles on. I didn't know other people were seeing it, but at the same time, you know, there's a, this like he's shooting things like helicopters out of the sky as Birdman. So like that all, I just take down as hallucination, but I don't know. At this point, it just seems like a, a heavy clue into the delusion of this guy. Well, he does levitate up past some, some apartments and one woman opens up her window and looks up at him and sticks her head up and and sees him doing that though i guess she could have been looking at something else but they do seemingly react to him that's the part i only noticed the second time you'd have to check that out but yeah they do seemingly react to him like he actually is there and doing those things i mean i'm pretty sure it's meant to be ambiguous like you're not supposed to know for sure yeah i agree i agree with that i don't think you are supposed to know and we'll get more into that in just a minute. But mm. for now, like you said, he flies into the opening night of the theater or he takes a taxi. One or the other. Happens. Yeah, we see him fly and land in there. Yep, And the camera fixes on the front of the theater and some time passes, which the entire first act of the movie goes by here. We don't see any of it. Not the movie, but the play. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't see any of that. But the next scene we see is Riggin backstage in an intermission and his ex-wife comes in to talk to him and, and give him one last conversation before the finale. Yeah. And it's like a, it's a great scene because he's sort of confessing. He confesses how he tried to kill himself one time after he cheated on her or something like that. Right. Yeah. He says that he tried to walk into the ocean and drown himself and drown himself but a bunch of jellyfish stung him and and prevented him from doing it yeah so he he walked into a big nest of jellyfish apparently out in the ocean and got stung 
And she, he came back and she was like, you told me you got sunburned. And he's like, yeah, you believe me, huh? <laughs> that answered one question I had at the beginning of the movie. They showed a montage. There were some jellyfish. And then there was like a meteor or a shooting star. Mm-hmm. I never figured out what the meteor was about, though. What was that about? Nah, I don't really know either. Unless I kind of thought maybe it was Birdman flying through the sky. Well, they showed it two or three times throughout the movie, so I know it means something. I just I never figured it out on my yeah, own. Yeah, it's there for a reason. We just don't know why. <laughs> yeah, but the but that solves the mystery of the jellyfish. If you're wondering why there were jellyfish in the first couple scenes, yeah. I think that's why he tried to kill himself, and he was foiled by these jellyfishes mm-hmm. or jellyfish. I is that how do you pluralize jellyfish? Jellyfish, yeah, Jelly- jellyfish. Not fishes, jellyfishes. No, never fishes. <laughs> it's a, it's a cool word. You got to admit, it is, it is. But I'm pretty sure the plural of fish is fish. Ah, uh, that's a bummer. Yeah. But within the scene here, he tells his ex-wife that he wishes he had been a better husband. He should have been a better father, and that he loves both both she and and their daughter together. And then he prepares to have his final performance, and he seemingly is taking a real gun with him. Yeah, we see him load up and cock a, uh, a, a automatic, uh, semi-automatic gun that actually has a clip in it with bullets. <laughs> yep. And so we it's... know that the scene ends with him shooting himself. We've seen it twice now with the, yeah. with the fake headband. So there's no doubt that he's intentionally going out to, to shoot himself and, and kill himself on stage, right? Mm, yeah, I think so. Well, the first time I watched it, I wasn't sure. I was like, was that maybe an accident? somehow no no yeah mistake no it wasn't no he definitely knows he he sits there and looks at it knows the gun that he's put it pointing to his head when he pulls the trigger so he does go on stage he gives his last monologue and he shoots himself in the and in the the head and oof what a monologue too like he it's just that's the like we were talking about earlier how you can tell the difference between like they do a good job of making like good acting and then really good acting you know like yep. separating the difference and you can really see the honesty and the good performance in this final scene where he's just, he just does it from the heart and he's no longer talking about the character. He's talking about himself. Yeah. Yeah. At that point he is talking about himself and he knows it's the last speech he's ever going to give because he's about to kill himself on stage, mm-hmm. which is the only way he's going to get the one up on, you know, the New York times critic and, Basically, get out of this the shitty quagmire that he's created for himself, or the yeah, the stagmire. He'll, he'll show them. Yeah, he'll show them by by killing himself, and he does. And they all start clapping. He gets a standing ovation. <laughs> I, you have to assume the people in the audience thought it was still fake, right? That's why it's yeah. called the uh, virtue of of ignorance. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Like, it's I don't know if that's why they call it that, but the the crowd definitely believes it's just the performance of a lifetime they just saw i thought that was why they called it why they gave it that title because the new york times writer titled that the next day he's apparently a big hit now that he's killed himself on stage yeah i don't know what the unexpected virtue of ignorance really pertains to i guess the unexpected virtue of ignorance well the virtue of ignorance is if you're at least talking about him too how so i don't know just like his ignorance into the world of the theater or like whatever he's doing or I, I don't know. I took it to mean the audience was ignorant to the fact that it was actually a man killing himself and 
they thought it was just part of the performance. So the virtue of that is not having to witness a murder if you didn't know it was a real a suicide, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not real sure. And I'm not sure either, but he's not dead, in fact. He, he makes it. He just blew his nose off. Yeah, all he did was blow off his own nose. Or his beak. Yep. So he awakens in a hospital, and Jake is there, his agent, as, long, as well as his ex-wife. Jake is absolutely ecstatic because the performance that he did the night before got rave reviews, and even the sinister Tabitha was uh, loath to say anything bad about him after he seemingly killed himself on stage. Yeah, yeah, well... Tabitha gave gave it rave reviews and and she was saying she was going to destroy it. But that's that's actually kind of cool because at least she's honest about it. She doesn't just do it out of spite. She actually gives him the credit that he deserves. And that's kind of cool. But, yeah, he's uh, he's now in the hospital surrounded by his wife and his his daughter comes in and his agent. Well, his yeah. agent, his his agent agent's says elated. we did it. Yeah, he his says we did elated. it. We did it like it was intentional. Because well he's like i mean it's a success but his agents like this is good this is the stuff the legends are made out of like this they're praying for him in central yeah, he park says, look at this him. they're praying for us all across the country like that's the yeah. goal of anybody yeah he's like there's gonna be book signings there's gonna be all this he sees it as an opportunity and because he didn't die you know he's like my best friend's alive yeah it's like a mixture of of good friend bad friend because He's about to capitalize off of this, but I don't think he's completely heartless in the sense that his friend is, you know, I think he well, is, he's a genuinely happy that his friend's alive. Well, to wrap up my miniature theory that I had concerning this guy, I kind of thought that maybe after the incident with Ralph and they realized they were going to get sued, they had to do something drastic to make back the money they were going to lose on this production. And so mm-hmm. either he coll- colluded with, uh, Riggin to, yeah. to pull this off and shoot himself in the nose and, and make it the biggest show ever. Or maybe he didn't collude with him and he like had the fake gun rigged to, to where it was a real gun, but that's more extreme, you know? So, but now, it's possible I, I, maybe yeah. that they work together to do it, to make money. I don't think, so. I think like having followed Riggin around through this entire movie, I feel like it's just his mental instability that causes this. And his friend is just an opportunist, it's his friend slash agent business partner. So he's just an opportunist there at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably the way it was going down. And uh, Riggin is being comforted here. The media comes in and, and they're all trying to get to him, but he's being comforted by his ex-wife and his daughter as well. Yeah. Which proves, I guess that deep down they do have an unconditional love for Riggin. Yeah. So that should be fulfilling to him and, and satisfying and maybe make him regret the suicide attempt. But then he goes into the bathroom, and the Birdman is sitting on the toilet next to him, taking a shit. <laughs> and yeah. uh, he takes off the plaster nose that he has, and he sees that they've given him a fake nose, which is much larger than his real nose. Yeah, it, looks, look- it does look more like a beak. Yeah. yeah, I think they did that on purpose to make it look almost similar to Birdman's nose. So he's become Birdman. Sort of. So to, to further that concept, he goes out to the window ledge of the hospital. And then you don't see if he jumps or not. He's like looking out the window and you kind of see this sense of renewed life. And then he sees the birds up there and he's like, ah, yeah. And he opens the window and then he gets up on the ledge 
and then the camera pans away from him and his daughter walks in. Yeah, his daughter walks in. She runs to the window to seemingly in horror because she thinks he jumped out. But then she looks up into the sky in, in awe and she chuckles. Almost like she sees him up there flying around. Like he yeah. actually is flying. We can only assume that she sees him flying. There's way more evidence that he actually is doing <laughs> yeah, that than there is that he's killed himself. That's why it's so boggling, because you're led to believe the whole time that he doesn't actually have these powers, but maybe he does. I don't Seemingly know. Seemingly, he does have them, yeah. So it leaves us at a big question mark at the end. And we've kind of already thoroughly discussed it, that you can't know for sure. It's, it's meant to be ambiguous, yeah. I think. Yeah, for sure, because... You, like I, I just kind of made the assumption that he had that he killed himself at the end, but again, you can't be sure. Yep. So that is the movie. That's the Birdman. Very strange. Was the only way I could think to describe this movie on the first watch. It's very strange. Yeah, it's out there for sure. It is out there, and it may not be for everyone because of that. That's why I was so surprised when you told me this was an award-winning movie. I can't believe enough people got this or you know claim to have got this to to appreciate it to that level well i don't think you have to get it to appreciate it like it's a it's a good movie regardless of whether you understand understand it or not like it's uh it's a well-performed piece by great actors and the directing is stylistically different and so it's just got enough touch of artistic nature to make you go man this is such a wild movie and it's it's definitely worth watching a few times because like any good movie that we review, it's the more you watch it, the more subtle things you pick up. Yeah, I would I would say that this is one of the ones that a rewatch is necessary. Mandatory, yeah. yeah. Yep, you've got to do it. So it's naturally the grade's going to be above 10 for that. But I, I will say I'm not sure that I would consider this a great movie because they didn't wrap up a lot of the story. Like a lot of the plot that, they spent a lot of time investing in say Mike in particular was a very prominent character in the first half of the movie. And then he just kind of fades off as well as the yeah. storyline of the two other, the female co-leads besides Sam, they really don't complete any of the story that they build. Mm -hmm. So that's a mark against for me in that sense. But I was interested and intrigued the whole time and both times watching this movie. Yeah, and for me, it's just much more about the performances that happen in the movie, and like what's, it's it to me, it's it's really complete because it's got all this great stuff going on. It's got such good acting, it's got wild directing, it's a good story, and it's got everything. Like it, like like I was saying, like it really follows how a good script should go. It's got rises and falls. It it pulls the pressure up and releases it. And then pushes it up again higher and releases it, pushes it up again higher until it finally booms. And then it lets us down a little bit at the end. And it's uh, it's just structured really well, I think. And it's funny. It's philosophical. It's dramatic. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's just it's just got a little bit of everything. And they just. They, I think they do it well. The balance of, of, of the way they use the script is, is really impressive. Yeah, the script was my favorite part of the movie, I think. You know, a lot of people will probably point to the directing style and, and the way they shot the film as, as a big positive. 
for me, I, I didn't love the camera thing because I've already mentioned it just made me anxious and, and felt mm-hmm. uh, nervous, though I do give respect to the idea of trying something new, and they definitely did that. I haven't yeah. seen a movie shot like this, I don't think, ever. Yeah, yeah. But before we get to the grades for Birdman, did you have any favorite lines? Uh, yeah, well, we start off with smells like balls in here. <laughs> <laughs> Smells like balls in here. And uh, his agent says something about when he's threatening the act, the other actor that's going to sue, he, he says he's going to release his computer stuff. And he goes, yeah, he has a things, thing for nuns in diapers. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the uh, wild, that's the trump card he has over Ralph. Yeah. I think. And then his wife tells him, it's what you always do. You confuse love for admiration. And so I think that was really telling of his character. And then when uh, when um, Mike is talking to her out on the ledge, he says, she says, if you weren't afraid of not getting it up, what would you do to me? And he goes, I'd pull your eyes out of your head and put them in my own skull and look around so I could see the streets the way that I used to at your age. And I just thought that was a really well written line. And then it's kind of a throwaway line at one point, but but. Uh, um, Riggins says, I look like a turkey with leukemia. <laughs> I actually wrote that one down, too, because he says it to the Birdman. He's, the Birdman's like, yeah, you can still do it. We can get back into the costume. And he's like, no, I look like a turkey with leukemia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, oh, um, Mike's girlfriend, uh, uh, Leslie, says, she, he goes, how do you know Mike? And he goes, oh, we share a vagina. <laughs> yep, yeah, I like that one a lot, too. Yeah. And... Uh, Oh, whenever she's describing, she's making all these dashes. Sam's making all these dashes on the toilet paper rolls. And she's like, that's the way that they had us do in um, rehab because each one of these dashes represents a thousand years. And this is how long the earth's been around. And this one little square is how long humans have been around on earth. And she says, and that's all of our ego and self-obsession is worth is one little square of toilet paper, essentially. And, uh, Mike also says popularity is the slutty little cousin ah. of prestige. Damn it. You're stealing all my lines. here. Yeah, I, lo- I love that line. That was really funny and true. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you can be popular, but to be prestigious, you know, that's a whole different ball game. Yeah. Slut- slutty little cousin. And the relation as a slutty little cousin makes all the sense too. Yeah. You got any more? Is that it? You got to steal the rest that's, of mine. That's it. What other ones you got? I'll steal them right now. No, I'll, I'll X out the ones that you said. Uh, there was one I loved when it was uh, Reagan says to Mike, you don't get a heart on on my stage unless I tell you to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just a funny thing to say to somebody. Yeah. Uh, I, I found it really, it made a lot of sense when Reagan says to the sinister woman, Uh, You just label everything, and that's lazy. And that is what a lazy critic does. And, yeah, you're right that we are critics as well, but I don't think we're lazy critics. We we talk about the structure of the story and the purpose of the characters and things like that. So we don't just label everything. And also, disclaimer right now, we're not right. Yeah, we're we're rarely right. We don't think we're right either. Just because we have an opinion on something doesn't make us right about it. It's just our opinion. And we're not getting paid to spout our opinions. So we're not as, as bad as uh, this lady, Tabitha. Uh, another line I've got here is, the blood coming out of his ear was the most honest thing he's done in the last hour or something like that. So 
Roman oh, says that about yeah. Ralph. The, <laughs> the blood coming out of here was the most honest thing of his performance. Yep. And then the last one I wrote down was from Jake when he's talking about the crew and he says, don't fuck with those guys. They're union. So, <laughs> so this guy's like willing to stand down against the, the most brutal lawyers and everything, but he will not stand up against these backstage crew members because they are union. Yeah. And uh, you stole a couple of my other ones. So that's all I got there. Uh, oh, oh, wait, no, no, there is one last one. And that's when Jake again says, we did it. They're praying for you all across the country. <laughs> like, like that's your ultimate goal as a, as an actor and director is to have yeah. people praying for, if anyone's ever praying for you, something oh, horrible yeah. happens. Yeah. You did something though, because people are, are putting up prayers for you. Yeah. You don't want to be prayed for. So that that's funny that he, he spun that as a positive somehow. Yeah. Also, also how about the, uh, he says something about other than your massive erection. Did, did you think it was massive? <laughs> Did it look massive? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, the way you have been talking, you said you loved everything about this movie. I feel like you're sniffing around a perfect score or something for this one. So, well, it's uh, it's it's up there. I want to put you on the spot then, and you go first here with your grade if you want. Well, here's the thing: is this? I just I just think it's a supremely entertaining movie with a great script, great actors, great performances, fun a fun script to unpack. I mean, like you said, there's a few things that distract to take away from it because it doesn't, the story does not round out completely for sure. You're left with a lot of questions. So if there's any flaws in it, that's my only issues is that there's too many, too many storylines start and don't go anywhere. Uh, but I think it's kind of meant to just create a chaos in the backstage of what's going on. But regardless, it's just like things start and do not finish and characters with importance don't get, don't get their full round in the script. But, uh, to me, it's just, it's just a shade below perfect because I don't know, like, like I said, I can't find any other real faults with it. The directing, like, I love the camera the long shots that they do, like you were saying, you don't, you don't enjoy that. Like I love that because I think that's, that takes more skill. Like the actors have to stay in character for longer and do the whole scene and do the whole, the whole shoot and take it in one perfect shot, as opposed to small snippets of, of perfect shots. So I like that. And I like that the director took a risk with that and pulled it off. And I like that they incorporate almost the real world with Michael Keaton's biographical story mixed in with it almost. Yeah. I did enjoy that. Aspect. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's just, it's just a, it's just so much to think about in this movie. And that's what really gets me is because it's a, it's a think piece and it's funny and it's sad and it's philosophical and it's, it's uh, emotional. And, and it, and it reminds me a lot of working as an actor and do, and the things that go on in the theater. So for me, it's got a little bit personal, a more personal, uh, click. It hits a little bit further home. Probably I'm going to give it an 18 out of 20 because I think it's, it's just like, I can't find much fault in the, in the movie entirely. And, and just the casting is perfect too. They cast everybody really well. And, and then that's not even to mention the music, like the drums and the cymbals, they're causing that anxiety on purpose and you can feel it pick up and move and go faster and it, it drives the pace of the scene. So pacing in scenes is very important, like how quickly it's coming and going, the lines are being said to each other, all that stuff. 
and the the drums and the cymbals are accenting that uh um or and accentuating or whatever uh, that and then it switches to this classical music and my friend Rachel was telling me about how she, we talk about the classical music only kind of comes in whenever he's going through his delusional phases so all of a sudden the drums will stop and then it'll switch to this classical when he's in like his delusional phases so the everything's very intentional it's not like they just picked good songs for the soundtrack that the soundtrack is is part of the show. It's feeding the drama. Did you notice when he walked into the theater when he says stop music and then the music yeah. stops right then? Yeah. And he uh, says start music before he jumps before he jumps off the building. And that's at the same time that the taxi driver's coming in saying, "Wait a minute." So it's like they they give you both sides right there within that scene. It's like, "Oh, well, he's obviously magical and controlling magic, but at yeah. the same time he's riding a taxi." So it yeah. is confusing. In, in terms of my score, I don't disagree with anything that you said. But the problem for me is just I didn't enjoy the things that they took a chance on. Like the long shot, the, I, that does take more skill as the actor for sure. But as the watcher, I was stressed out. It, it stressed me out watching it because mm-hmm. I like to take in all these little details. And I kept rewinding the movie and saying, what was that? What was that? What happened? What did I miss there? Yeah. And I felt like they were just throwing it at me so fast. I didn't like the anxious feeling I got from that. Yeah. And and aside from that, uh, the drums, the, you know, they do accentuate that fast pace. And if you enjoy the fast pace, then that's great. But if you don't, then it's like, oh, God, now they're playing these drums. It's making it even worse on me. So it's like, <laughs> I don't know, it caused some stress there. But the acting was great. I did like the story a lot, the, the half of the story that they finished. I almost wish that they had just put more of the time that they used on the other characters into that main story and, and really developed it even more. But, you know, I've got no problems with the script. The acting was incredible. And uh, I can't quite give it a great movie category for me because I didn't feel it, it was great to me. Mm-hmm. But... It's more than rewatchable, and so I'm going to give this one a 14 out of 20. Ooh, you could have gone 15. I could have, but 15's a great movie for me, and I didn't. 15's, I, I didn't the, feel like it was 15's the watermark. You could have put it at the watermark right there. I I could have, but you know, I I want to stay true to my score. I I don't want to label it uh, falsely. So okay, I, feel I wrote like, it down. I feel like I aptly convinced you of why it's a good movie, and you ignored it. No, the the best argument you made was that, you know, the skill it would take for an actor to pull off these 15-minute takes. Oh, but that yeah. doesn't change the fact that I don't like to see it, you know. That, you know, you can, uh, I guess, eat a thousand hot dogs at once, <laughs> and that would be impressive. But I don't want to see it. So <laughs> okay, all right, fair enough. I, I don't need to see it. It's, it's still yeah. hard to watch. It's a vague analogy, but I'll let it fly. Well, it was right off the cuff, so that's the best I could do. Okay, it's good then. I could have said I'd be impressed if you ate a shit sandwich, but I still don't want to watch you eat. <laughs> All right, that's a little better. That's getting closer to it. Yeah, so that, there we go. That's that's my reason. Though I will add the disclaimer is if I rewatch this movie a few more times, I could see myself falling in love with a movie like this if if yes. I notice if I notice the right things and. And it's I, deep. I developed it's, some things. Yeah, it's deep. There are layers, and I don't think you'll ever discover. It's it's almost in the same sense that the lighthouse. You know, 
Like I did compare it to the lighthouse a few times when watching it. Yeah, like there's deep layers that are going on in this film, and you're never going to understand it. You just have to kind of make your own decision on it. And I, I kind of chalk that up to the big difference being is I, I love the foghorn. I love the dialogue. <laughs> I love the river oh. dancing that they're doing. And if that grates on some people, then, you know, this would be a, the lighthouse would be a 14 for them maybe. But they That's are true. very similar movies. I, I do agree with that. All right. All you want to do is label things and put in a box, you fucking critic. You don't risk anything. Yeah. Well, you know, I took a risk with Legend when I gave it a 15 out of 20, and <laughs> and that's the high water mark for a great movie. And Birdman, that, that wasn't just a risk. <laughs> that wasn't a risk. That was just you using a shock factor. No, Birdman just couldn't live up to the standard of Legend. Nine out of ten Rancid Taco fans agree that Legend was a shit movie. All 10 of them love Legend. All right. All 10. <laughs> Nine out of the 10 of the Ranch and Taco fans. That's not that's not a reduction into a fraction. That's nine out of the 10 fans. <laughs> that's actually nine out of the 10. Yep. All right. Well, Legend's great, but we're not reviewing Legend next week. But we did mention it, and that's got keeps the streak going. Keep the streak alive. But you have to agree that the fact that uh, he referred to Marlon Brando as one of the greats to ever walk the stage up there, you have to agree that that probably gives me a win at some point or another in a podcast back in the past. I immediately thought that that would raise your your score <laughs> at least one point for this movie. They said oh, the yeah. words. That should then. So I give it a 19 out of 20. Oh, what's it going to take to get a perfect movie out of you, by the way? I've given a couple perfect movies. Yeah, but I've been thinking about it, man. I don't think you're ever going to give another one because you didn't give Wizard of Oz a perfect movie, and I really expected you to do it. Mm, I don't know if I will or not. I mean, I'm trying to think of what else would qualify for a perfect movie in my book, and I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I have another 20 up my sleeve anytime soon either, if ever again. Did You gave The Wrestler a 20, right? I did give... The wrestler at twenty. Yeah, but, you. Uh, fucking, that's probably the last one. See, that's the difference between me and you is you hand out twenties like they're fucking growing on trees. All right, like I, I, I have a, I have standards to keep here. Okay. You've given two twenties, and I've given four twenties. It's like my theater teacher never gave me an A. You know that? Well, you deserved an A. Why would you not accept the A? Why would you not take the A that you deserve? She didn't give me A's. I don't know. She didn't. She said she didn't give A's out uh, unless unless a person really pushed their craft to the ultimate level. And I guess I wasn't pushing it enough. She yeah. was like, she graded on a curve. It's like my work was obviously better than everyone else's, but she said it doesn't matter. I'm not grading you on everybody else's. I'm grading you on your own work. So it was like always. I could have pushed myself harder. Was her was her uh, complaint but on But she it. didn't give A's to anybody? I never got an A in any any of her acting classes, no. See, that's bullshit. So that's and she cast, she cast me as the lead actor of every one of her fucking shows. So you obviously should have been getting A's, just like you should be giving out 20s to, to the ones that deserve it. Well, if Wizard of Oz know. doesn't deserve a 20, I mean, what I'm does? Pu- I'd like to think I'm pushing these movies to do better, you know what I mean? <laughs> I gave one of the Lord of the Rings a 20 and then another 20 to something else. What you, I gave it? you gave two Lord of the Rings 20. Two Lord of the Rings movies a 20. Yeah, the second and third. The, well, two discs of the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. <laughs> totally ridiculous. So, all in all, one total movie. Yeah. All right, well, next week, we're going to do a movie that we have talked about on this podcast many times. And let's just say, 
It's not going to be a perfect movie, but it does have the perfect bear fight. Oh, dear. Maybe this will get a 20 from me because I like this movie. It will be The Revenant, Leonardo DiCaprio versus the bear. Oh, man, I like Leonardo DiCaprio DiCaprio and Tom Hardy. Well, welcome to the podcast, or welcome back to the podcast, Tom Hardy, and welcome back, Leo DiCaprio. A couple of our old favorites there coming back next week. Two really good guys, two great actors. Yep, and so that'll be fun. We'll we'll do that one next week. But for now, where should people email us? Email us at uh, rancidtacopodcast at gmail dot com. Very good. And- also, I want to make one last thing uh, here available because this movie does talk about suicide quite a bit, and uh, I thought we should include this. And it's a national suicide prevention lifeline because you know suicide's kind of a uh, not not really a laughing matter, and it's something that people struggle with all the time. So uh, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. And uh, if you're ever contemplating suicide, you can call that line and talk to somebody that might help you. Uh, and that was – I actually was not the, accredited with that. Uh, Rachel definitely turned on that, so I'd like to give her credit for that. But I thought, right. it, was, I thought it was a good thing to drop in there. It is a good thing to drop in there. It's Much- off. It's off brand for us, but we can grow as people too. Yeah, for sure. I'm growing every day uh, horizontally. So yeah, I'm growing on my pants right now, just talking to you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, with that said, hail to your mother. Uh, hail to your mother. Yeah. Hail, hail to all mothers, and uh, thank you everybody for listening. We will see you next week. Goodbye, y'all. Rotten Tomatoes when you've got the rancid tacos. This podcast is brought to you by West Virginia Pepperoni Rolls.